2: So if you take those four words, product development and learning community, what I basically have been focused on almost my entire career is to really say, how can we, from the product development part, think about the learning model, think about a business model, think about ways that we can monetize engagement, and then link that up with a pure learning community in which it's been designed for people over time to work together, work with peers.
1: I'm Salisa Steele.
2: I'm
0: Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 339, which features a conversation with James Young. Jim is founder and chief learning officer of the product community a product development learning community designed specifically for associations. Jim and Jeff tackle some broad subjects, product development, learning communities, innovation, culture, but they approach these subjects from a practical point of view, drawing on Jim's experience working in a variety of learning businesses that have embraced many approaches and strategies, including credit for prior learning, virtual and augmented reality, gamification, and cohort-based and competency-based learning. If you're looking to spark ideas for product innovation in your learning business or looking to start or enliven a learning community, this conversation is for you. Jeff and Jem spoke in November 2022.
0: I know you've played roles at associations in the past. You've played roles in academia in the past. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your history as a chief learning officer and in in other roles in this sort of learning business world?
2: Yeah, let's see if I can be brief. I'm a trained librarian. I started my career in distance learning about 30 years ago, serving 10,000 students worldwide, teaching them how to find information and basically uh, running a research service. I then built on that foundation, and that's really the kind of core germination of what we'll talk about with the product community. I went to George Mason, and I was there for about 10 years, and I was there in the mid-90s in which there was this flurry of innovation around learning communities. So I was there in a college within a college called New Century College, and it was competency-based learning community. It was about 10, 15 years prior to flipped learning, really on the forefront of experiential learning, problem-based and everything was problem-based and team. Just to give you a flavor, all faculty were required to teach outside of their domain, which just created a deep learning experience, not just for the students, but it created a, a faculty learning community. It was really just something special even to this day. I followed one of the deans to a startup university, an anomaly in higher ed, but an anomaly as far as like bridging the world of startups with the world of exemplary undergraduate learning, and then linking that intimately to industry. So, so that was a real unique experience. I was the founding chief information officer, but oversaw all learning services and the library. And it was just a truly integrative, unique experience that, again, was a building block for me as I shifted over to the world of associations.
0: About, and that, that was uh, Harrisburg University, is that right?
2: Yeah, that was Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. They were thriving. It was literally a s- starting from scratch. New curriculum, new budget new faculty. It was really the perfect opportunity for me at that point in my career. I was full of zeal and ideas and a little bit naive about how the world worked, but absolutely a turning point in my learning journey as a professional, but also my learning journey as uh, somebody who's a serial learner. But, you know, over time, I think it's become kind of an SME in the space. So yeah, those were all interesting experiences and they really served as a foundation for entering into the world of associations, which I find was ripe and continues to be ripe for some interesting change and evolution. So two associations over about 10 years, one called SCUP, Society for College and University Planning in Ann Arbor, and the other one was the American College of Chest Physicians outside of Chicago in Illinois and a uh, chief learning officer basically they're quite different organizations but i had the same charge driven by the board which was to develop an inclusive learning strategy to tap into what was already a healthy community but to really invest deeply in learning as a vehicle for longitudinal engagement that's what really married those two really paired those two up as building blocks in my career as i was able to apply you know what i knew about learning communities from undergraduate learning but then was be able to say, how do we link that to adult learning and create flexible yet innovative learning paths for people who are hungry, not just for professional development, but hungry about building relationships with their peers.
0: Am I correct in remembering that the chess physicians did a fair amount with the simulations? Is that, yeah, uh, is I can't that accurate?
2: credit for any of that. Our learning model is multifaceted. When I was there, COVID hit. And what was always, we have basically an intensive care unit, we have an ICU in which we do all of our simulation training. And we were on the cutting edge of that, on the cutting edge of experiential learning. And then we really pushed the envelope while I was there to further our imprint in gaming. So we've always been in gaming, but what we wanted to do was to evolve our gaming footprint Into more high agency games in which we could actually measure meaningful impact and outcomes in physician learning. And then the third area, the other area related to simulation and gaming was VR and AR, so virtual reality and augmented reality. So again, as I talk about the product community, I can get into not just how we create these things to draw learners, but how we understand how it helps them. One, improve their own skills, and two, why we really exist, which is to move the needle on patient care. And I hope listeners are
0: truly listening to hear to, to some of what you said, because it's remarkable, either you personally and or the organizations you've been involved in have been doing things that really are on the cutting edge of learning tactics, learning strategies, you know, you said you can't take credit for the simulations, but you're involved with the gaming, with virtual reality, augmented reality, going back to the George Mason days. I mean, learning communities, competency-based, team-based, I mean, that's stuff that people are, you know, really aspiring to right now, and most haven't really gotten there, and you're doing this, you know, more than a decade ago. So, you know, great to have that level of experience coming to this conversation. Yeah, sure. One question I have, and this you can tell me if this is an unfair question, because I know that continuing education and lifelong learning weren't really your focus in academia, or it doesn't sound like they were. But still, I'm wondering if you have a perspective on sort of how the academic world seems to be approaching continuing education and lifelong learning right now. Because to be honest, it seems to be coming a real cash cow for many universities. Yeah. It's saving many of them who are having trouble with their degree programs how they're thinking about it, how sure. they're pursuing this market versus how you've seen associations who are like, you know, one of the, th- those are kind of the two 900 pound gorillas, I think, in the whole adult yeah. continuing education, lifelong learning market. How do you see them as being different, if at all?
2: I think there's real parallels. They're complements. Actually, at George Mason, it wasn't just undergraduate learning. I was also working with adult learners for about in this really innovative program. I think it was called Bachelors of Individualized Study. So what it was is we basically Gave credit for lifelong learning. A lot of these people, this was in the Washington, D.C. area, George Mason. So a lot of these people were working professionals and had accumulated either through the military or through their professional career. And then over time, what we said is, we're going to create an experiential applied program for you, and you can actually create a major and draw from anywhere on that campus. So my experience with continuing ed, even though that's been like 15 or 20 years, is still actually relevant today. I do think it's a cash cow because I think it's a market-first learning program. And if it's designed properly out of the gates and it's not just a solely an in-person, semester-based, GPA-based, kind of the traditional constructs of higher ed learning, you actually can reach new markets. It's been proven over time. Now, I haven't been in higher ed in 10 years, so I can't actually point to specific data, but I do see a connection between associations, higher ed, and then also all of the other content that's out there, either open source or through a subscription. There's so there's so many different ways as a professional to sharpening that pencil, sharpening that saw as you move through your career. And I think that you can really dip in and dip out of all of these. Jeff, the phrase that I'm starting to socialize in the world of associations that I think is relevant here, what we said at CHEST is that we want to create that 50-year learner journey. People are like, what? We have needs right now. And I'm like, we absolutely have needs right now. But what we want to do is we want to create longitudinal engagement. So we need to be thinking about not just the needs of the physician you know, when they start to engage in the association, which is like mid-30s, age 40, but start to think of them when they choose med school and when they go through med school. And so you're creating these connections and there's some relevance for that youth market. And then you literally are trying to say, how do you create this indispensable learning environment that it isn't a matter of membership? Membership becomes an outcome because it's something that's so necessary. It kind of puts the traditional model of associations on the back burner, which are still useful, and and basically just says, you know, who are you? Who do you want to connect with? And then here's some possible uh, learning paths for you to evolve over time, which to me doesn't have to be just the association you can tie in with for-profit learning companies and higher ed. And then ultimately you start to think of not just what am I going to learn over 50 years? What problems am I going to solve with whom? And then how am I going to shape the world? Putting learning at the heart of that, not as something solely credential based.
0: Right, right. That jibes so well with, you know, we've often talked about the concept of the other 50 years, which most people are, you know, done with their sort of traditional K through 12 and higher education, sometime in their mid-20s, if they're lucky to even go that far with it. And then they've got this other 50 years in front of them that they have to navigate. And, you know, of course, yeah, I mean, associations play a role in that. Continuing Ed plays a role in that. Any number of other providers play a role in that, as you're saying. And I think for all of those different types of organizations, to think about how they fit in, what role they can play. I mean, increasingly, I think of associations in particular as kind of being more in the career business than anything else. How are you helping to support that path across a career I'll note, too, that we've also had Chris Dede on the show. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with his yeah. work, but he talks about the 60-year curriculum. So, you know, similar. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah.
2: yeah I know, Chris. He was a, I got my doctorate at George Mason, and he was one of my professors.
0: And that would make sense. Yeah. So we'll yeah, definitely just, have to. Just
2: absolutely way be, leading thinker. I could, we could spend the rest of our time on Chris. Just yeah. incredible.
0: We'll be sure to link to that episode as a part of oh, the show yeah. notes for this episode as well. So one other thing I want to say, I feel like I wish I had a bell to ring every time you mention one of these concepts. It's just, you know, so important that you've been involved with that whole essentially credit for prior learning yeah. is what you're talking about earlier, which again, sure. So many organizations are looking at now and saying, how do we do that? Because adult learners typically have so much experience, they don't need a course per se, they just need some way to establish that they actually learned a great deal already in life and should get some credit for that where credit is uh, actually applicable.
2: Yeah, it's funny. My whole early career was based in that. So when I was at Embry-Riddle, we were basically working, it's a school for aviation, Air, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and our students were distributed throughout the world. And this is like the pre when the web went technicolor. This was like in the early 90s. And there were military bases all throughout the world, and they were on ships. And we actually offered degrees, and it was a lot of based on prior learning. And then we were literally, you know, I was in the library, but I played as much of a learning function as, as anybody in that program. So it was like you know, this early glimpse into, hey, how can we not bend the model, break the model, but really start to evolve what's fundamental and timeless about professional learning and to really hook on to that and then to create some interesting channels for engagement on top of that just foundational basis of, of learning, whether it's I have a need for a credential or I just want to, you know, further my career.
1: As someone who listens to the Leading Learning podcast, you should know about the Leading Learning newsletter, which you can subscribe to at leadinglearning.com slash inbox. The newsletter is Inbox Intelligence for Learning Businesses and helps you understand the latest technology, marketing, and learning trends, and grow your learning business. Best of all, it's a free resource. As a subscriber, you get leading links, our monthly curated collection of resources to help you grow the reach, revenue, and impact of your learning business. The Podcast Digest, a monthly summary of podcast episodes released during the previous month, Plus, periodic announcements highlighting Leading Learning webinars and other educational opportunities designed to benefit learning business professionals. Subscribe for free at leadinglearning.com inbox. And if you're already subscribed, point a colleague to leadinglearning.com slash inbox.
0: So you've clearly got a very rich background in the learning world and... Now you've brought this to a new project, a new company you've created, the Product Community, which I want to make sure we spend some good time talking about it. So maybe a good point to start from is, well, tell us about Product Community and what problem it was created to solve.
2: So the Product Community is a product development learning community designed specifically for associations. So if you take those four words, product development and learning community, What I basically have been focused on almost my entire career is to really say, how can we, from the product development part, think about the learning model, think about a business model, think about ways that we can monetize engagement, and then link that up with a pure learning community in which it's been designed for people over time to work together, work with peers, It's a choice-based model so that there's ways that they can get content that's more asynchronous and on-demand, but really it's how do we get in a room and grapple with difficult to solve problems, complex, messy problems. So the product community itself marries these two worlds, one of community and then one of product development. It exists to solve a couple of key problems in the world of associations, and I think this is true for other, other folks in the learning industry. One, I think we wrestle against a pretty traditional business model, the way that associations work. I think there's assumptions, cultural and otherwise, that kind of this set of services that we typically offer. So we do events and publications and, you know, we'll offer learning. But in and of itself, we're often bound. Second, there's stagnant revenue industry wide in the world of associations. And that's typically driven by joinership, membership organizations, people just aren't joining as much as they would have in the past. And so I think the value proposition conversation needs to evolve. Third, I think we undersell our value. From the learning perspective, you could put that hat on you're always kind of wrestling for time or wrestling for to integrate your services into the lifeblood of the business, or the association, fighting to get to the table. So I think that those are the bad things or that's the problems that we're trying to solve. But there's also good ones. I think associations were, there's something timeless about them that people love engagement and connection. So I think there's something to tap there. And so the product community itself is like, how do we understand who our customers are? How do we design really interesting value propositions for them? And then to start to engage them in new ways beyond the traditional.
0: I suspect that what we were talking about earlier around you know, looking at people as being on a life journey, a pathway that, particularly for an association to sort of step back and think of that and then how, what they can provide along that pathway in in all sorts of different ways. I imagine has got to be a a great catalyst for for thinking about products at at this point.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Again, it's really easy to say, oh, let's spend our time like ripping on associations. There's a lot of great things that associations do. And there's a lot of great people who go into associations because they believe in the purpose of them. However, I think that we can over time shift from what I would call like a hamster wheel of single use one-off content and programs into learning that actually does drive that longitudinal engagement amongst a community of peers. My ideal description of a well humming association is it's an ecosystem of ideas. And that ecosystem of ideas, back to a phrase I used earlier, has this indispensable draw and this indispensable value that ultimately it's something that you, that you, you want to give your time to and you wanna you know, pay money because you're gonna benefit from it, not just from what you learn, but who you meet and what problems you're going to solve. Another thing that I see that's really important in the learning world, but also in associations, it's how do we get to that higher order measurement of outcomes? So how do we evolve towards, hey, I was satisfied this, or hey, I learned this, toward how do I apply or what impact am I making with what I'm learning in this community? How are we, in my last job, it was like, how are we going to demonstrate that learning can move the needle on lung cancer, for, just for instance, or COPD? In and of itself, there's a lot of research data in that, but how does the learning function affect that? Last thing I would say, I mean, just related here is that most associations, like most firms or most higher ed institutions, they aren't very strategic. And so without this clear direction and sufficient capacity and capability, it's actually hard to build, no less sustain a culture of innovation. So I think there's a real opportunity here. And that's why the product community exists. How do we understand what value we have? And then how do we create these really interesting pathways and get really good at creating this so it's not high stakes? It's actually part of the culture in how we create this value and connect with our learners. Right.
0: And I I like that focus on it becoming a culture and also what you mentioned about impact. We often talk about the impact imperative because we feel like, you know, as it's more and more crowded out there with just the range of learning experiences that can claim a potential learner's attention, much less what they'll pay for. If you're not actually showing that it has an impact, it's going to be harder and harder to keep them coming back and doing anything with you or hard to convince employers to allow the time or pay the money for um, their employees to do those sorts of things.
2: Yeah. The product community is not a content dump. It's not saying, okay, let's create a bunch of videos on how to create products in a particular environment. This is not associations aren't software companies. We're not in the world of physical products. We kind of sit in the middle, like we're informed by those two areas of product development so yeah, I completely agree. You know, there's an opportunity here because the actual existing business model, which is based around community engagement, does work. How do we evolve that by using product development to create new value for new customers?
0: So let's say that an organization has bought into this idea of yep. a product development community. So they're willing to form a community. It, we might talk a little bit about what the challenge is to getting to that point. <laughs> even sure. Are. I'm sure Absolutely. not everybody You're says, right. hey, community, yeah. let's do that. But let's say they have gotten there. I mean, practically speaking, what are the kinds of activities going on in a product development community? What are the mechanics? How do you actually move from, hey, here we are as a community to we've got these great product ideas that we're going to get out into the market and, you know, and show their impact.
2: Similar to my description earlier, you'll see, you know, kind of historical precedents through my previous roles and experience. This is a competency-based experience. So everyone who goes through the product community, um, it's a cohort-based program. It's, as best as we can, interdisciplinary. So trying to get people from different lenses on the learning enterprise together. That includes marketing and IT and finance people from publications, people who produce content, but maybe in different environments, gaming, et cetera. So the second thing in its purest form as a learning community, coming together to solve problems across boundaries is vital. People will learn in unexpected ways and further the community. And again, while enhancing culture, simply because people are going to be tied together. What's unique about the product community is that you learn to create products and you actually create products it's not something that's actually theoretical it's actually boots on the ground and i think we'll get to this later it's a different model of innovation it's not the big bang model breakthrough idea of innovation it's really based off what associations do best which is to understand who their customers are tap into their needs Build deeper relationships, empathize with them, and then again, start to rethink what I view as a lot of underutilized content and learning. And I think there's such an opportunity there to engage further.
0: And just to clarify for the sake of listeners who may be wondering, when you're talking about you know putting together the product community and running this sort of cohort-based approach, Is this a cohort within a single institution, like, you know, a single association, or do you sometimes have people from different associations participating in a community?
2: The first product community was started when I was at the American College of Chess Physicians. And so what I just described is we got together a diverse group of people. We had 120 staff and the cohort was 12. And so it was really based off, you know, somebody coming from the foundation, somebody coming from grants, somebody coming from sponsorship, but, you know, big basis in learning and product, but also somebody from finance and IT and half of them were like kind of scratching their heads. We offer the product community for individual associations, and then we also offer it in which people can join it from lots of different associations. So, which is a little bit of a different business model because we're not working on shared problems. Right. We're working on different problems that, that again, we're, I think are related, but hopefully through that peer learning community You know, people will actually gain insight. So if I'm working on a game and you're working on membership and I'm working on how do I do e-learning, three questions that you can take through the product community. It's really like the question I want people to think about, which is not alien to our world. How do I productize my annual meeting? It's like new language and a new concept. That could be done in the more public cohort, the one in which you come from lots of different associations, or you can do it within your own association. You can go either way.
0: And I imagine, you know, at least at the beginning, there can be a lot of excitement in a community. People are like, you know, they're ready to roll their sleeves up and connect with each other. And there's this driver of, you know, we're going to create a product which can keep people focused. But at least my own experience with communities is it Over time, it's hard to keep that enthusiasm going. It's hard to keep people engaged. It's hard to keep them sustained. I mean, what's your experience with that? And to the extent that you've found that to be a challenge, what tips might you offer for how to sustain the community over time?
2: Uh, We think we found a sweet spot. There's a certain what I would call radical components to the product community. One, you can engage in day-long workshops or you can engage in three-month experiences. We have both of those in our product portfolio But really why we exist is this is a year long cohort for people to wrestle with how to create products in a community. These are products that are actually, you know, learn how to actually get them to market. We can't promise that it's gonna bear fruit soon, but in and of itself, we believe that what we're offering is what we call a repeatable product framework. And that repeatable product framework is something you would take back so that you can actually start to rethink all the value that you create through the lens of product which ironically enough, is absolutely member-based, it's customer-based, so it's almost like a misnomer to call it the product community, but calling it the member community isn't actually proper. It's really like, what value do we produce, and then how do we create a vehicle, longitudinal vehicle around that value to attract and engage the member or the customer? So longer, what I recommend is change doesn't happen in a two-day workshop, change doesn't happen in a quarter. The market is responding to the year-long program, and then we meet three to four times a month. I think is one way of sustaining this, um, keeping it small initially. The product community is really the way I describe our ideal customer, is frustrated innovator. So people who are in the world want to see evolution, think that associations can innovate at the highest level, but are frustrated at kind of the you know, the tired business model, the stagnant revenue, maybe the volunteer model gets in the way sometimes. We think this year long program is to solve it and then outcomes each quarter. So it's not like you're waiting at the end for something. You actually build outcomes throughout as you're on this journey to learn how to build a roadmap, learn how to prototype, learn how to test something, and then how to scale it and then spin it off. So it's actually a model that borrows from software, but again, it's community-based.
0: And you just mentioned, you know, the frustrated innovator. And I, I know innovation is very much at the core of this. It's a word that shows up on your website a lot. I'd love to hear more of your perspective on that, because I think a lot of times with innovation, you know, you hear about breakthrough innovation or you hear about from a strategy perspective, you know, the blue ocean strategy. But, uh yeah. I know in the world of associations, and this is not just true of associations, it's true in you know, so many areas of organizations and business that um, A, culturally breakthrough innovation can be very tough, but then B, practically speaking, there may not be huge breakthroughs to be made. It may be more around the edges that you need to figure out the things that are really going to tip things you know t- towards what the customer, what the member actually needs. I mean, what's your perspective on that? How big are we talking about innovation? How does that innovation you know, happen?
2: Great. Question: I'm so glad you asked this question because it's so some experience here, some things that I don't think work. One, creating a division or department of innovation. I think it's something that needs to be integrated throughout the lifeblood of the organization. It becomes part of the culture. So innovation in of itself, framing less as what's the new million dollar idea and more as incremental and evolutionary is also vital here. Um, I think that associations, in particular, and again, this relates to other, relates to higher ed, and it also relates to other learning organization, do such great work, but find that it's often underutilized or often doesn't have a follow up. So that kind of single use one off is really something that that I find is happens in almost every association I'm in. It's like the annual conference is over. Wow, that was successful. Hey, we brought in a lot of revenue. Hey, we got new members. See you next year. Well then, Yeah. (laughs) See you in the four days next October. So to me, there's a huge opportunity to say, okay, how do we continue that conversation? And again, people in associations aren't idiots. They have webinars and things, but, you know, it's really kind of sustaining it in which you have meaningful pathways as a learner in something that's, that's relevant to you, but also just like jazzes you. And so in and of itself, innovation, I think, is in some ways it's about leveraging. It's really about how do we leverage what? we do well. Uh, Most associations, even if they are $40 million or $50 million or $100 million, still have tight budgets, they still have capacity limitations, they still have pressures from the board. So innovation in and of itself needs to be something that's distributed, part of the lifeblood of the organization. And again, finding vehicles around things like product development, which to me is not high stakes, it's actually something that's required. It's required because I think we need to be thinking substantially more creatively about who our customers are and what they want and then how to deliver it in a way that's going to meet them. And when I say it's not high stakes, some products are going to fail. The trick here is that associations have always been in this world, but they don't view it through the lens of productization, which I think is A breakthrough here Um, it's in some ways it's nothing new it's just new to the space of associations
0: right well Jim you know as we've already I think uh, made clear in in earlier parts of this conversation you've obviously got such a rich background in the world of learning and different types of organizations that engage in, in this learning business so it's great to see you focusing your your thoughts your energies now in this direction because it it is badly needed. I mean, we see this all the time broadly across associations, broadly across learning businesses and having a more mature approach to product development. I think it's going to be essential for thriving and for success going forward. Before we wrap up our conversation, I want to talk about um, you thriving going forward and how you help to ensure that with your own lifelong learning is I'd love to know, you know, what are the types of things that, that you as a learner do that that you value? And, and to the extent that it's part of how you go about lifelong learning, I'd, I'd love to hear about the role that the communities play for you as part of your, your learning journey.
2: Uh, great question. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I belong to these for about 10 years now, a really unique boutique, I wouldn't even call them an association, Association of Managers of Innovation, um, AMI. It's truly unique, it's small, it's boutique. You're gonna recognize in my description, it's similar to the product community. So it's a learning community of innovators from all different disciplines, literally all different disciplines, military, clergy, high-end product development, people who are in not-for-profits, people who are in software development, librarians, you name it, but they all have something in common. And it is truly a unique place in which you can, it's a safe space. You can actually be vulnerable in this space because Being innovative leap, and I think it's often hard. And this is a space in which people can say, okay, hey, I got your back. You know, let's let's see how we might you know solve this really tricky problem together. I read physical books. I have way too many physical books, but it's, it's to me, yeah, I read online constantly. I'm connected to my phone like everybody else, but this kind of takes me away and kind of anchors me in kind of an analog world. And so I always have at least one or two books going at the same time. A couple of podcasts that I like. Two Bobs. I highly recommend this podcast called Two Bobs, Ditching Hourly, Clever, and Lenny's podcast. These are kind of like new to my world, but I think they're absolutely related to learning, but also to becoming innovative.
1: James Young is founder and CLO of the product community. You can find links to the product community's website and Jim's LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 339.
0: And we do definitely encourage you to check out the product community site. In particular, their association design circle may be of interest to association listeners.
1: We'd be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable. Jeff and I would personally appreciate it and those ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a rating. And
0: please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague or a personal note, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 339, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook.
1: Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.